if you're going to write for market, then you're going to have certain elements in your book that are going to appeal to the readers of that genre. And you're going to focus on those things as you're writing the book. And I have done that and I've been very successful doing that. But if you're coming to a project where it's just something out of your heart that you want to write, don't expect to sell it. This episode is brought to you by my book, Speak From Within. Learn how you can engage, inspire, and motivate any audience. You can also download my four simple tips to make starting any conversation a breeze at the link in the show notes. It's also brought to you by the Brain FM app and this podcast's host, Podbean. Creative solutions are the best contributions we make. Welcome to the Creative Solutions Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Isolde Trachtenberg. I am thrilled to welcome this week's guest, author, filmmaker, and podcaster, Dr. Karen M. Bryson. Oh yeah, she's also a professor. I wonder when she sleeps. But before we get to our chat, I invite you to stay until the end of the episode when I'll be doing a quick exercise on manifestation. Before I go any further, what do you think manifestation is? Well, manifestation is like being a magician, but instead of pulling rabbits out of hats, you're bringing your desires to life. It's about harnessing the power of your thoughts, emotions, and beliefs to attract the experiences, opportunities, and abundance you desire. So how can you use manifesting to improve your work or your life? Well, it's all about getting clear on what you truly want, visualizing it with excitement and detail, and then taking inspired action towards your goals. Imagine yourself stepping into the shoes of your future self and let the universe conspire with you to make it happen. But it's not all just about imagining. It's about doing the work that greases those wheels. So if you stay tuned until the end, I'm going to give you a short exercise that's going to help you start on the manifesting journey. And you know me, if I'm involved, so is meditation. Stay until the end and you'll get a short two-minute magic mini meditation manifestation you can use today. It's all free. It's just my little gift to you. And I'm going to have more in-depth meditations coming as part of my introduction to magic meditation manifestation class coming soon. I'm your host, Isolde Trachtenberg. Super, super happy that you are here listening to this amazing woman talk. I can't wait to introduce you to Dr. Karen M. Bryson. Now, here's the thing about Dr. Karen M. Bryson. She's a doctor. She's a PhD. And she's doing a lot of amazing things in addition to that. So sort of professor by day and amazing creative in other ways by night. And I'm, she's been on the show before, so I'm super excited to have her back. But let me tell you about her. Dr. Karen M. Bryson is an award-winning filmmaker and USA Today bestselling author of over 50 books. She hosts two podcasts, The Curious Professor and Motivate the Muse. When she's not writing, podcasting, or making movies, she works as a tenured university professor and searches for fascinating stories in unusual places. You can, you can view, I can't even say, you can view her films on YouTube at www.youtube.com slash at The Curious Professor. Karen, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me today. It's such a pleasure. You are fabulous. I love, I'm reading your bio and I'm going, holy crap, when do you sleep? This is amazing. So, and 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 I did not realize 
that Motivate the Muse is its own podcast now. I know there's a Facebook group, which if you're listening to this, you should join, particularly if you're interested in writing. But you started a second because the Curious Professor was just not enough, I guess. what What's going on? How are you finding the time, the energy, and the resources to do all of the things that you're doing? Well, uh, the reason that I am doing that is to give back and to help um, people who are trying to become writers or maybe writers who are stuck in their careers um, to give them a little extra motivation, support, and mm. uh, inspiration, encouragement. Um, so that was the reason to do that. And also uh, to interview authors um, who maybe want to also give back to the community and at the same time um, be able to promote their work. Wow. So as part of this, you're sort of, it seems to me like you're you're working on the progression, right? If you're just starting out, there's something for you with Motivate the Muse, but also these authors who are mid-career or maybe even uh, further along than that, who want to, because there's always a double benefit, right? If you go on a podcast, you're getting the opportunity to talk about your work, but you're also, and more importantly, bringing value to the audience of the podcast. So when you're talking to these authors, what kind of information are you looking for? What what stories are the ones, as you said yourself, fascinating stories in unusual places? What stories are you trying to get toward your audience from the people who come on your shows? Well, it depends on who the author is, what kind of things they write, where they are in their career. Um, so it really is dependent on the person that I'm interviewing. Um, but I like to say it's the story behind the story. And I know that sounds cliche, but really, I think people who are writers want to know what motivated that person to write what they write. Um, but also, if a person's not a writer and they just want to learn more about that author, um, they can also benefit from listening to what the author has to say about their process and um, how how they came about uh, with their their story. I love that. And it is interesting that, that there's this two pronged approach, right? You might want the tips to be a writer, but you also might love the author. Like I got the chance to meet Judy Bloom in when I was in Key West a couple of years ago, and I got to squee at her and tell her what a fangirl I am just for a minute. I didn't take too much of her time, but it felt really good to have that that little tiny bit of connection with someone who had influenced my life to such a degree. Now, you are an author as well as so many other things. I'm gonna ask you a silly question because you've written over 50 books. Tell me, which was your favorite to write and which was the most challenging to write? Wow, you know, like they say, I don't have children, but they say it's hard to pick <laughs> your favorite. I think it may be equally as hard to pick your favorite uh, book. Um, usually I always give a smart, smart ass response and say, oh, the one I'm working on right now is my favorite because usually it is because that's the one that you're, in, you know, engrossed in at the time. But I have to say a story that I really um, fell in love with was Jericho Jackson, Alien Hunter. And I don't write, admittedly, I don't write too much science fiction, mm -hmm. um, but that is one science fiction uh, story that I wrote that I really enjoyed writing. And I think for me, um, of course, I'm a professor, so I always love the research process and just doing a whole bunch of research about um, 
people who have who have had UFO sightings and um, different conspiracy theories about UFOs and also um, just interesting stuff about Arizona and the connection with the indigenous people here to um, to alien beings. Um, you know, there's a lot of mythology uh, in the indigenous cultures around um, connections to people from outer space. So hmm. bringing some of that mythology into the story, because it does take place in and around the, the region where I live, which is in Arizona. Um, I made up a town, uh, but it really is where I live, which is halfway between Tucson and Phoenix. Um, but it, it was it was a lot of fun to write and a lot of fun to do the research and just um, all the different things that people write about um, online about aliens and UFOs and just getting into that um, that community of people was very fascinating. So I really enjoyed writing that story, doing the research for it. And uh, it was originally published when um, Kindle um, used to have their Kindle press. Uh, they were the first people who published it um, because I won. Um, they used to have a thing, a, a contest called Kindle Scout. Mm -hmm. And um, I was one of the winners and I won a publishing contract. And then like two months after the, it had, it had been going on this Kindle Scout program where they selected a, a winner once a month for like two years. And then two months after I won, they discontinued the program. Oh no. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stuff like that always happens, but eventually I got my rights back and, um, I published it as part of my own publishing company. So, uh, yeah, that was a fun, uh, a fun story to write. And I really love the character. Um, and it, it's interesting because not a lot of people are writing that, that type of story. I mean, obviously a lot of people write science fiction, but it was really like a science fiction with romance and with suspense and uh, adventure. So it was a lot of the things that I really enjoy that I don't or haven't in the past written so much that mm -hmm. that type of story. So it was a lot of fun. That was probably one of my favorites that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, challenging to write. I wrote a story um, called... Uh, only the pretty ones and it is a revenge story and at the time I was writing it it felt um it felt necessary at that time to write that particular story uh there and at that time that I wrote it there wasn't a lot of female revenge stories um so it felt good to write it at that time but I'm in such a different place right now that it's challenging for me to even like remember the person who I was who wrote it and mm. also for me to promote it now because I don't feel like I'm in that same place where I feel that connected to a, re a revenge story so that it was challenging to write it and now it's challenging to feel like I feel good about promoting it <laughs> That's that so fascinating. Oh, it does. And it's fascinating because, yeah, you're not the same person you were when you were writing it. So getting back to that place, I wonder if psychologically it brings stuff up for you that you're kind of going, you know, I left that part of me behind. I'm not sure that I want to excavate 
her again and right. and bring her to the forefront. So yeah, there's I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of really good probably research that that surrounds like why would you want to go backwards? You you can be moving forwards. You said something though that I thought was fascinating about the first book you were talking about about Jericho Jackson is her name? Yeah, Jericho Jackson. I love the name. <laughs> That's a great name. What an adventurer's name. Uh you said that the that the story was science fiction, but it also had romance. It also had this, and so it sounds like it's a cross genre kind of book. And from what you're best selling author, so that's awesome. Talk to me a little bit about that notion of writing cross genre, and how much it has an effect on your ability to actually sell your book. Like if you're not if you're writing a straight sci fi. Is there room f on the shelves for a straight sci-fi that has all of these other elements to it? And if so, how do you eke out that elbow room as an author? So that's a huge question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I would say um, just in terms of sales and crossing genres, it depends what the genres are. It depends what niches you've written in in the past, who you're who your audience is, who you're trying to bring into those two genres or perhaps into another genre. Say, you know, in the past, as I was, you were a romance writer. Well, it's not that big of a stretch if there's enough romance in it to bring somebody to a science fiction romance, perhaps. Um, on the other hand, though, since I was primarily a romance writer, um, trying to get science fiction people into a science fiction romance, I probably wouldn't be as successful doing that. So it depends where you're coming from, who who the audience is, who you've had in the past, and what genres you're trying to bring together. Um, I mean, there are certain genres that I can think of off the top of my head that it may be more difficult, like a romance horror might be more difficult than, you know, a lot of people write uh, suspense with romance. Those two things seem to attract um, people who love romance and then a lot of people um, who like suspense like a little bit of romance in it. Um, even even men um, will enjoy those stories. So um, I think it depends on the genres you're mixing and and what your platform is as a writer. It's so interesting to me because in looking at how do you write well-rounded characters? And that's going to be my next question to you. Uh, I would imagine even a straight, hard-boiled science fiction novel would have, if you're going to have realistic characters, would have some other facets of the human experience in it, right? I mean, wouldn't? what are your thoughts on that? Is there room for what I would think would be kind of one-dimensional characters in this very, I'm, it's science fiction, only science fiction, we're only gonna talk about spaceships. We're not gonna talk about the fact that these people have perhaps well-rounded lives. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's a different, like, so I feel like what you're talking about, pardon me for a minute. No worries, <laughs> I can talk about stuff all over the place. I had, I had, to, I had to cough. Um, no worries. So um, I feel like if you're bringing an audience in and they are of a particular fan base, um, they're going to want a particular thing. So mm -hmm. yes, when you're when you're 
a good writer and you're writing well-rounded characters, you're going to have some comedy, you know, in a suspense perhaps, or you're going to have elements of other types of things in, in the story, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to classify it that way. So like I, I could have a romance that may have a, a romance that may have some suspense elements but I wouldn't necessarily classify it on a shelf as suspense Mm -hmm. unless there's enough suspense in it to bring in someone who enjoys suspense. So I I think saying it has elements of something is different than classifying it and trying to sell it it in that way in that genre. Mm. So one is about the creation of the book and the other one is about the sales of the book. It sounds like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's just, it is interesting to me because what in, in the mystery novel that I released back in August, uh, the first book in a series, it, it's a mystery, but it definitely has a lot of romance and it has a fair amount of suspense and the suspense and the mystery work well together. Uh, and the romance is is part of the book. It has to be because that's how my characters, that's how I wrote my characters. But uh, there's, I don't know if there's any comedy, maybe. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I'd have to go back and reread it. But so so the question that I have for you about that is, is how do you separate, you have your own publishing company, how do you separate uh, how much attention you pay to the sellability of a, of a story as you're writing it? Do you do that? Or do you tell the tale you want to tell and then figure out this is how I'd market it. Um, so both. <laughs> this, this, is ah. what I, this is what I this is what I tell people who. So I I coach writers and I help people obviously during the day in my day job as a professor I'm constantly um, helping students with writing but also I co- I coach people who want to write books mm-hmm. and so what I tell people is. If you're going to write for market, then you're going to have certain elements in your book that are going to appeal to the readers of that genre. And you're going to focus on those things as you're writing the book. And I have done that and I've been very successful doing that. But if you're coming to a project where it's just something out of your heart that you want to write, don't expect to sell it. I mean, you could try to sell it and maybe people will enjoy it and you can figure out a way to market it but you're not writing to the market. So it's going to be a different way to approach the sales. I mean, there's no right or wrong thing to do. You can write to the market. A lot of people, that's their entire career writing to the market and they're extremely successful and they enjoy doing that. And that's great. And and you can be very successful doing that. But there are people who just write whatever the heck they want and don't care about sales. And that's a great thing too. There's no reason not to do that. But you have to be realistic in what you're doing and what the potential for sales are. I mean, if you're interested in writing a book about, um, you know, uh, people knitting and all they do in the book is knit, that may appeal to people who like to knit, but it may be a very small audience. But if that's what you're passionate about, that's great. Figure out a way to sell it to knitting clubs. But it may not be a, you know, blockbuster bestseller. But if that's your passion, go go for it and write it and see what happens. I have so many friends who knit who would probably love a book. <laughs> All they do is talk about different stitch patterns. And that is the great mystery is that there's like a hidden stitch pattern that no one knows how to do. And all of a sudden it's a it's a mystery about knitting. 
<laughs> and they're off. I love it. Uh, well, you have knitting needles, so you could probably have a lot of murder mysteries with knitting needles, I'm sure. I'm sure. I think there's an Agatha Christie novel. One of her books is uh, That's the Murder Weapon du jour. Uh, so yeah, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's been done. I'm sure it'll be done again, but I, I, it's interesting to me that you, you know, you coach writers and you have so much to do with writing, but you yourself, you're making a, sh a shift if you will, or maybe you've already made it from author to filmmaker. And I would love it if you talk a little bit about making that shift. Uh, you're, you're well in your career. You are, a, you know, a tenured professor at a university. You're doing all of that. You're coaching writers. You're a best-selling author. And now you've gone, and I have enough room for yet another hat, filmmaker. Can you talk a little bit about how that transition happened? What happened to you creatively to prompt that transition and where you see it going and i know it's like 42 questions in one feel free to take them at a time and i can also repeat them okay so let me just start by saying that i never intended to become a novelist um so that was kind of just to, to take a step back uh, or way back because i'm ancient um <laughs> is that so in around 2005, well, let's go back even further than that. Okay. Uh, originally, my thought for my life was what I was passionate about when I was young was acting. And so oh. I spent a tremendous amount of time in my teenage years and my early 20s acting. And when I got a little bit older and a little bit more mature and figured out that I couldn't stay up all night all the time because I was getting older and that didn't work, I transitioned to playwriting. And I loved playwriting and I was fairly successful at it, but you can't make a lot of money as a playwright generally. So I decided let me try screenwriting. So in 2005, I went all in and decided I'm going to try to become a screenwriter. At the same time, that was at the same time that I became a professor. So I had that career during the day as a professor. And, you know, in the evenings and weekends, I was on my way to try to become a screenwriter. And for about 20 years, well, almost 20 years, right? That was 2005. Uh, I real, tried really hard to become a screenwriter and did everything you can imagine. <laughs> I have written over 30 screenplays, feature-length screenplays. Wow. About 15 TV pilots. And uh, I've pitched thousands and thousands of times and I've won dozens of screenwriting competitions and I've got optioned, uh, I sold the script, but never had anything produced. So uh, in during that course of time, over the course of time, I was trying to break into screenwriting. Someone at some point said, oh, it's great to have IP, intellectual property. So have a novel and then someone will take your screenplay seriously. So I said, well, let me try writing novels. So I started writing novels based on my screenplays and that just took on a life of its own. And I ended up for about a 10 year period, 
just getting really into writing novels and actually becoming more successful at that than I was as a screenwriter. Hmm. But I never gave up the dream of being a screenwriter. And um, I tried again without much success to reignite um, something, to have something going on uh, as a screenwriter. And still, like, and it's difficult. I mean, obviously, it's not easy to break in as a screenwriter. Um, but the doors were really slamming this time around when I tried again to reignite that that dream. Doors were just being slammed in my face over and over again. Um, and admittedly, it's a little bit tougher. Um, there's a, I feel like there's a little bit of a bias um, in Hollywood in general uh, against people who are of a certain age. Mm. So uh, I said to myself at one point, why do I keep pitching to people who aren't taking me seriously. Mm. I said, I'm, I feel like I'm just beating my head against a wall and mm -hmm. for no reason. And the more I thought about it, the more I said, I've invested all this time and all this money and all of this emotional energy to try to impress somebody enough that they will um, take on my screenplay as a producer and try to get it made into a movie. I said, why am I doing that? Why am I just not making my own movies? Mm -hmm. Like it was an epiphany to me why I'm not just making my own movies. It, it Suddenly it made no sense to me why I had, had done what I did all those years of pitching and trying to break into Hollywood mm -hmm. when I don't need to do that. There's so many resources right now now's the best time to be a filmmaker because you can literally edit things yourself on a computer. You know, you, we have access to the best uh, filmmaking, you know, um, equipment then that's relatively inexpensive. We can practically shoot a entire film on an iPhone now that it's so sophisticated. So I'm like, it's the best time in life right now to be a filmmaker. So why don't I just, not bother with pitching anymore and trying to impress somebody enough that they will produce me, I can become a producer myself and start making my own movies. So that's what I decided to do. And I didn't realize at the time when I made that decision that I would actually love filmmaking. It's like the best thing that I ever did. And now I'm wondering why I didn't do it earlier. Uh, but of course, you know, it has to be the right thing at the right time. And I guess I wasn't ready and we didn't have the resources. I, you know, I can't see myself, you know, in a, in a studio, like back in the nineties, splicing <laughs> the old, you know, the old celluloid film. I can't see myself doing that, but I can certainly edit on a computer, you know, so I guess the right thing at the right time, the timing has to be right. And the timing is definitely right for me now. So there's no stopping me. I am now a filmmaker. That is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And about, goodness, uh, 12, 13 years ago, I did this thing where I wrote a short story every single day for a year. And out of those short stories, and, and the key was I, I only had one minute to write the story. I called them 60 second stories. And there's a point to what I'm saying. 
And then I took some of those stories, the one that people, the ones that people like the most, and I turned them into little screenplays. And then we actually made them into what we called one minute movies. And they were, and I produced them all and directed most and blah, blah, blah. And they were just a blast. So I'm right there with you as far as making movies. Uh, the the thing the thing is back then it was on you know on an iPhone six or whatever <laughs> so it was not nearly as sophisticated as like an iPhone fourteen might be in in cinema, but that that process of seeing it go from idea to screenplay to actually seeing it on screen was incredible to me. But there were a lot of resources I had to gather the actors I had to gather. Uh, you know, find the locations and all of that. And I know you're producing your own, which I think is great. But can you talk a little bit about the process for you of producing your own movies and working on all of those facets uh, that go into making a movie that we don't tend to think about? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It is a tremendous amount of work. <laughs> And um, wearing all the hats has been, the, it, it's so I always used to say the most challenging thing I ever did in my life was to write a dissertation. And for anyone who's listening, who's been through the dissertation process, they're, they're just nodding their heads right now, because that is an extremely, extremely difficult thing to accomplish. Sure. But making a movie, holy cow, especially when you're doing every job yourself. So mm -hmm. I am learning all the jobs because I am that type of person that I want to be able to do everything myself. And I don't, and because I, I went, I was so disempowered for so long as a screenwriter. It's like one of the most thankless jobs of all the jobs I think in film. Well, I can't speak for other people. I felt like screenwriting was a thankless job mm. and, um, and, and you're so dependent on other people like a screenwriter, unless they become a filmmaker has nothing. They have a screenplay that no one will ever know or see that story unless someone makes it into a movie or they decide to put it out in a different way, you know, like make it into a podcast or make it into a book. A screenplay is nothing. It's just words on paper until someone else, it, unless you're a filmmaker yourself, someone else takes it and makes it into a movie. Mm. So I was so, I felt so disempowered for so long. I was like, I never want to be in that situation again. So the people who are most inspiring to me now are the people who are like 100% DIY people making their own movies, doing their own thing, um, and just learning all the jobs. And it's been a lot of work and <laughs> a lot of things that are not easy for me. Like I'm not naturally a person who knows how to use sound equipment, for example, or not naturally a person necessarily who knows a lot about film equipment, you know, like I'm learning all these things as I go. And it's super exciting. Like I feel like a little kid again, which is mm -hmm. great for somebody in middle age to have that feeling of excitement. I haven't felt that feeling of excitement since like I went away to college, mm. you know, like that, that idea that everything is new. You have so much to learn, but it's so exciting. You feel like you have the whole world ahead of you. Mm -hmm. I'm regaining that feeling again. Like I was in my twenties now in midlife as a filmmaker, because I'm so green at it and so new at it. And it's like, 
the whole entire world <laughs> is ahead of me and but it's super exciting so right now um you know i've made i think eight shorts right right now and oddly like i didn't expect too much from the micro shorts that i made which as you said you made micro shorts as well i wasn't expecting too much from them cuz they're you know yours were a minute mine are like 2 to 3 minutes but I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback on them and um, one contest and was uh, accepted to um, to uh, festivals, like half a dozen festivals for the first two micro shorts that I made. So it's like I'm getting a lot of really positive feedback and I'm just starting like this is just the beginning, the beginning of my career. So I'm really excited to for the future to see um what what i can do what i can accomplish i mean as i said i'm ancient but still <laughs> i think i have a few years a few good years left so it's exciting what i can still do in the period the period of time that i have left is just absolutely thrilling and i'm learning so much but it's also it's intimidating it's overwhelming but also exciting. So all of those things wrapped up together. I love that. And it's interesting to me that you keep saying you're ancient, you're not ancient. And think about Bergman and and John Huston. They kept making movies. Well, like Bergman was what in his 80s. Yeah. So so I don't know if we can if, I don't know if we can say, oh, we're ancient. I don't think we can do that because that uh, truly ancient people are probably going to look right. at us, give us huge side eye and go, I'm still doing it. So you can too. Right. Uh, but, but it is interesting to me that, that you, you're focusing on yourself as being at the beginning of your career. I mean, you're, you're, you are, and you're not in that you come with a whole a bunch of experience in related fields. Right. Yep. So, yep. so that's part of it. But part of it also is, again, you're doing everything yourself but you're not also acting yourself, are you? Are you also in front of the camera as well as behind the camera? No, not at this point. No, 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 no. Okay. So and I don't anticipate that I will be in front of the really yeah it's funny because you were mentioning earlier how you had you did a lot of the i was a theater person too in high school and in college and even after college some a semi-pro kind of work and 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 then i went and i'm much more interested in being behind the scenes i i would write i would direct but i was not particularly interested in being on stage in that way anymore but at the same time, when you're making these movies, you need to find people who are interested in being in the movies for you, with you. What is your secret? What is your process that you go and you find people who are interested in acting in micro shorts? And, and, and I want to talk about the feature that you're making, too. How are you doing that part of it? Yeah, so right now I'm not using actors. I will be, <laughs> I will be in the summer using actors, but for the movies that I've made so far, I have had zero actors. Ah, what I am using is, um, AI voices. Interesting. Yep. So my, the reason why I'm doing that isn't because I want to put actors out of work with bots. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not interested in, you know, eliminating actors, but the reason I'm doing that is as I'm learning and growing and developing my craft, I don't want to waste people's time on things that I don't know if it's going to work. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm using the resources that I have available in my home, which are computer voices. And they are so sophisticated right now that I think they sound fairly reasonable. Uh, you, Unless you're really thinking about it, you probably wouldn't be able to tell they're not people. Wow. Oh, that's weird to me. As as somebody who does voice acting, I'm kind of going, but, but wait. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And then, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a person who wants to put voice actors out of work at all. You know, it's just like, I don't want to waste people's time and energy and, you know, on, on what I call my learning films. Mm. Granted, I mean, people seem to like them and I, I think they're turning out pretty, pretty good, but I, I'm not at that point yet where I'm going to, um, you know, want to hire somebody who is of a high caliber <laughs> yet. You know, I'm, I'm working toward that point mm -hmm. uh, where I'm going to be hiring people, but I'm, I'm not at that point yet. So yeah, uh, it's working really well with me using robot. I mean, the robots, but they sound like real people. Wow. The tech is just, it's AI is doing so much and the tech is it's blinding speed. And, and I think, you know, hopefully the, the creative aspect of making all of these works will remain a vital and necessary part. But sometimes I'm like, but what if it isn't? What if it stops being a vital necessary part and, and then I'll be out of a job? Uh, so, but well, you can say that about anything because, you know, people are publishing full books on Amazon now that the, the, the generative AIs have written. So, oh, that's just weird to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find that oogie. I, I do not like it, but, and maybe I'm a Luddite, but that's how I feel. Uh, so, talk to me about the most recent movie that you you just really when we're recording this episode you just released a trailer for notes from the city and it's a feature it's not a micro short or a short it's a feature that you're making can you talk a little bit about your uh your inspiration for making the movie and also how it's going i looked at the trailer i think the trailer is fabulous i'd love to know a little bit about what what it's all about what are you doing with notes from the city and where do you hope to take it Okay. So just to give you, uh, we'll take one step back. So I did a bunch, as I said, I did a bunch of micro shorts and I did, um, three micro shorts that were, um, based on the poetry of CP Kavafi. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm -mm. He was a Greek, um, poet, uh, in the early 1900s. He lived in the early 1900s. He was Greek, but he lived in, um, Egypt and I'm absolutely in love with his poetry. So I, his work, of course, um, in Greek uh, is in public domain. Mm. Um, so I translated three of his poems from Greek and I made um, three short films based on his poetry. And I love that process so much. I said, I wonder if I could take something that was in public domain that I can make a feature out of. And so I just started combing through a lot of old public domain materials. And I had uh, read some of Raina Maria Rilke's poetry in the past, but I didn't really realize until now that he had written a novel. 
Um, and when I found it, I fell in love with it. And I said, this is going to be the source material for my feature. Of course, um, as you know, Reinemann Real Rilke wrote in German. And once again, <laughs> his that novel is in public domain in German. So um, I'm translating it from German into English. But also the other things that I've done are to... Obviously, he wrote in German at the, um, this novel was published in 1910, so um, it was last century, um, and he wrote about a young man in Paris in the early 1900s. I have updated it, and the um, my movie is about a young woman in New York City uh, in present day, but Interestingly, a lot of the themes and the um, experiences that the young man in Paris in the early 1900s went through are very similar to the things that we experience today mm. as people who have an experience of moving to the city and what that is like and um, discovering yourself in terms of becoming an artist. So in Rilke's uh, novel, the young man goes, leaves the country and moves to what was then the big city um, to become a writer, to become a poet. And a similar thing with my character, she moves from the country, from a rural town into New York in hopes of becoming a writer. So um, a lot of the things that she experiences and going and goes through are, were so similar to what Rilke's character experienced during that period of time, which I, which I, every day that I'm working on it, I find it fascinating that it's so resonant mm. over a hundred years later. On some level, I'm not at all surprised though. It sounds like you're both tapping into aspects of the human experience. And I don't know how much that changes over time. Are you noticing? And if so, what are you noticing that's surprising you about the adaptation process from from this novel to the movie? So it took me a really long time. The Probably the most time-consuming part of this, not that it, okay, making a movie is extremely time-consuming. One of the most time-consuming parts was figuring out what I was, what my, what, what am I going to make a movie about? <laughs> like I knew I wanted to make a movie. What was it going to be about? And trying to, and I knew I wanted to use public domain material. So what was that going to be? Um, I had to find the exact right project. And um, so when I, when I found that, I was like, wow, it blew my mind how much everything about it resonated with me. But so having to not only adapt it into a screenplay, but also because it was originally in German, figuring out what was he trying to, what was he trying to say? Um, and am I getting the translation right? Am I getting the feel for it? Exactly what he was communicating. And then how am I going to, how am I going to translate that into a visual medium? The, the the most fortunate thing is, of course, Rainer Maria Rilke was primarily a poet, so he already 
wrote in a very visual way. Mm. So I think that may have been one of the things I don't even think I was conscious of it at the time when I decided that was going to be my source material, that it was already so visual in the way that he wrote it. Hmm. I don't know if that answered your question. It, it does. It does. I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering about what you just said about poetry being visual and, and also, you know, there are times when I read poetry and I go, uh, my, one of my favorite poems actually is uh, William Carlos Williams. This is just to say, and it's a little snippet of life. You know, this is just to say that I have eaten the plums that, that you were probably saving for breakfast. They were so sweet and so good truncated version, but that's it. That's the poem. And it's very short and yet it is evocative of a moment in time. And so can you talk a little bit about how the visuals of the story that Rilke wrote are, are you're planning, I'm assuming you are, planning to bring to life in that dimension in the movie? So, yeah. Um, a lot of what I'm doing, because he was writing about Paris and he was writing about a time period that, you know, is not the time period we're living in. I'm trying to take the emotion and the the while the feeling, the emotion of what that experience was and translating it into, okay, if somebody saw this and experienced this and felt this in Paris in the early 1900s, how would a person in New York see that and experience that and feel that? And it's not always a direct correlation, mm -hmm. although the feeling of, you know, like, the feeling of alienation, even though you're surrounded by people, you know, you could feel that in Paris at that time. And you definitely feel that at least I have in New York, you know, you're standing amongst tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, but you don't know them. So you could feel very alone, even though you're surrounded by, you know, all these people. Hmm. I, I think that's very resonant regardless of the time period and the place. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's interesting that New York is the one place in the world where I never feel alone. I live here and I, like just the other night, I was, it was very windy, bitterly cold, very windy. And I was walking and uh, walking towards dinner with my husband and I had to stop. There was a little sort of alcove and I stopped and the guy, there was a guy there and, and we started chatting. He's like, yeah, you need a windbreak for a minute. Yes, I do. And we ended up chatting. We ended up following each other on social media. Why? Because that's what New Yorkers do. So it is, it, it is interesting to me that there are people in the world who go, oh, I feel alone sometimes in, in, in the middle of 8 million people. And I never, I personally never do. And I wonder what that says about me, except for that, maybe that I'm supposed to live in New York. Uh, but, but there's something that you said that I'm all very curious about. You said, how would a person experience that same thing today, the same thing that happened that made, let's say, feelings of alienation. And the question that that, made, that sort of bubbled up for me is, are you trying to get an answer to how they would experience the same thing? Or as a filmmaker, are you trying to modify what you'd have to in order for them to experience what was experienced in the book? Do you understand my question? Um, 
So I want to evoke that same feeling in the person who's watching the film. So the, the main character is having that experience, but I want the audience to be able to feel what she's feeling. Yeah. And, and maybe I'm not clear on my question. So let me, let me rephrase it. Imagine a hundred years ago, looking at an airplane, you would be really wowed. You would be, wow, that's amazing. An airplane in the sky. Wow. Today we see an airplane in the sky and we're like, whatever, because it's a hundred years later. So, so the, is it that you're trying to get an airplane in the sky or are you trying to get that same feeling of awe and wow, today and what would you have to do as a filmmaker working in a in a contemporary setting in a contemporary movie what you would have to do differently to evoke that do you understand what i'm saying yeah yeah it's the it's definitely the latter okay um, yeah uh so yeah there's lots of things that are in my movie that <laughs> wouldn't have happened uh, wouldn't have happened in the early 1900s for example i have like a disco rave scene Obviously, there were no no discos and no raves, but it was to capture that feeling of like, I I want to belong. What what is that thing that I'm going to do to make me perhaps feel like I belong? Um, you know, and she and she goes to a disco rave, you know, to dance. Mm -hmm. Well, that wouldn't have happened, obviously, during that period of time in the in Paris and the mm -hmm. 1900s but it, it but this particular character does that so yeah it she's having different types of experiences to evoke the to evoke similar feelings mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and so uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna sort of step back a little bit because you're making this adaptation and that reminds me of the movie adaptation which i just love uh can you talk a little bit about that notion of telling the story how different is storytelling for books versus screenplays versus actual films? What makes what makes a compelling story in your mind? Is it the same across all the genres that you've worked in, or are there things about one that are that are tweaked differently, that are done differently than from the others? I think I I think telling a story is similar but the medium in which you're telling it is going to dictate how you tell it. So it's not like what the, maybe it's the what and the how question, like what you're conveying may be the same in all different uh, formats, but how you go about doing that will be different depending on, like there's fiction podcasts, for example. So if you have a fiction podcast, it's going to be much more sound oriented. And how will you tell this story um, in a way that can mostly be told via sound? When you have a film, it's, yeah, there's sound elements to it, but it's predominantly visual. So what's the best way to tell this story in a visual way? And then a novel, a novel opens you up. Obviously you have fewer limitations in a novel and you're going to be telling a story with your words. So you have to be um, fairly good at um, wordsmithing to be able to convey what you want to convey simply by words on a page. 
Yeah, and it's fascinating to me, like thinking about the radio dramas of the 30s and 40s and even into the 50s and how they came up with uh, the, the big Orson Welles, you know, the thing, the night that panicked America, the War of the Worlds live radio broadcast that the opening of the spaceship was uh, a mason jar being opened in a commode. And that was how they got that sound. <laughs> but it sounds so possible when you're listening to the actual broadcast it's it's incredible and you have to be very inventive and so i guess that's my next question to you before we wrap up how how inventive are you having to be to create this world of notes from the city uh so <laughs> i i would say 50% of what I'm doing is all thanks to Raina Maria Rilke and 50% is me figuring out a way to make it relevant to an audience today and make it a way that I can actually make a movie out of it. So there's the practicality of being able to make a movie and making it relevant to people today. So that's probably 50%. And then the other 50% is Rilke's source material. Yeah, it's 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 like you're walking hand in hand with Rilke as you're doing this, which I think is, it's, it's adaptations fascinate me because of that, because you may wanna go somewhere else with it, but on some level you can't because you decided to to do this project. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Karen, I'm so, so grateful you took the time to 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 be here and to chat about this. I, I would love to know one thing before I ask my last question that I ask everybody on the show, and then we're gonna come back and do the bonus. And the question is, what would you like to have happen with Notes from the City? What would your idea of success with it look like? Uh, in this case, since this is what I'm considering a learning film, since it's my first feature, success will be finished. <laughs> <laughs> Um, once it is out into the world, it, that to me will mean I'm successful. Um, I don't have, I have zero expectations for it other than I, I'm honestly, I'm making it for an audience of one, which is me. And uh, as long as I love it, that's the most important thing. I have zero other expectations for it other than that if other people watch it and enjoy it i will be thrilled but i really have no expectations other than me learning how to make a film and and having a feature film that i created myself yeah and not only did you create it yourself but you're you're creating it on a 500 dollars budget which i think is amazing i'm creating a feature film oh that's great on a $500, what? On a $500? I mean, films cost $300 million to make some of them. So uh, I, I'm assuming you're not going to be coming on location in New York because just one ticket from Arizona to New York City will, will eat up your entire budget. It's amazing. And I can't wait to see your finished product. I'm super excited to see it, to see how your vision takes shape. Very awesome. Uh, I I just really I'm just like a, a feature. Wow! I did I did one minute movies and I thought that was exhausting. So I'm thrilled to hear about you doing a feature. Uh, I I have as always one question that I ask everybody who comes on the show, and it's a silly little question, but I find that it can yield some profound answers. And your last question is this: 
If you had an airplane, environmentally friendly, of course, that could skywrite anything for the whole world to see, what would you say? We are one. And mic drop. Yeah, that's fabulous. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Karen. That's a, that's a terrific one. Uh, I would love it. Actually, I have one last thing for you before we move on to the bonus episode. And that is, if somebody wants to find you, how do they do it? What's the best way to find Dr. Karen M. Bryson online? Uh, well, if you're interested in watching any of my films, I would recommend going to my YouTube channel at The Curious Professor. Thank you. And... And, and anything else, any other places people could find you or is that the one you want to give out? I think that's fine for now. You Perfect. Can, you can just Google my name. I have I have so many projects and so many websites that it would take another 20 minutes <laughs> to name them all. So. I love it. I love it. All right, cool. So I, I that that link will be in the show notes and you'll be able to find Dr. Karen M. Bryson and Notes from the City, I assume, there when Notes from the City comes out. So that's really cool. Karen, again, thank you so much. We're going to be back in just a second to do the bonus episode. So don't go anywhere. If you're listening to this, you're going to want, you can tell you're going to want Karen's recommendations on things. So come back in just a couple of days and grab that bonus episode unless you are one of my Patreon or buy me a coffee folks in which case you'll get it today Alrighty, until next time this is isolda trachtenberg reminding you to be bold be creative and most of all be kind hey there thanks for sticking around this manifesting magic mini meditation should only take about two minutes are you ready here we go Find a quiet space where you can focus and be present for this mini manifestation meditation. Take a minute to center yourself and then let's begin. Step one, set your intention. Close your eyes and take a deep breath. Set a clear intention in your mind of what you want to manifest. Visualize it as if it has already happened with all the details and emotions associated with it. Step two, connect with your breath. Shift your attention to your breath. Take a few low, slow, deep breaths, inhaling positive energy and exhaling any doubts or limitations. Let your breath be a conduit for aligning your thoughts and emotions with your desired manifestation. Step 3. Visualization and Emotion Visualize your desired manifestation in vivid detail. See yourself living it, feeling the joy, excitement, and gratitude. Immerse yourself in this vision, allowing the positive emotions to fill your being. Step 4. Affirmations Repeat affirmations silently or aloud that support your manifestation. Choose empowering statements such as, I am worthy of my dreams becoming reality or I attract abundant opportunities aligned with my desires. Step five, gratitude. Express gratitude for the manifestation as if it has already happened. Feel a genuine sense of appreciation for the universe's support in bringing it to fruition. Gratitude amplifies the manifestation process. Step six, release and trust. Release any attachment to the outcome and trust in the universe's timing. Let go of doubts or worries, knowing that you have planted the seeds for your desires. Trust that the universe is working in your favor. Slowly return. 
is the last step. Take a final deep breath, exhaling any remaining tension or resistance. Gently open your eyes, bringing your awareness back to the present moment. Carry the energy of your manifestation with you as you continue your day. And I guess there's one last step, and that is, you're going to have to work. Remember, manifesting isn't just about daydreaming. It's also about doing the work, taking the steps, small steps are fine, in order to bring your dream into your reality. Remember, if you want to manifest the dreams in your heart, you have to have clarity on them, you have to plan them, and you have to work for them. The best way to be in the right frame of mind is to meditate. You're going to hear a lot more from me about that soon. But for now, do this manifestation meditation and see all the amazing places you'll go. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here. Please subscribe to the podcast if you're new, and it would mean the world to me if you told a friend about it. Today's episode was produced by Isolde Trachtenberg and is copyright 2023. As always, please remember this is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Past performance does not guarantee future results, although we can always hope. Until next time, keep living what you believe in. Thank you.